To live in the Atlantic provinces requires a deep appreciation for the sea. For centuries, the ocean powered the economies of these lands. To look out of the window and see the waves crashing against the harbor was both cathartic and cause for concern. For many mothers, daughters, and partners left on land, it was difficult to imagine all that could be happening to their husbands and fathers out on the vast waters, far from any news, far from any help. But what happens when the sea comes a little closer than people are comfortable with? I'm Rachel Stewart, and this is Canadian Disasters. My relationship with the ocean can best be described as complicated. I love to swim. I love the peace and silence that comes from being completely submerged in water. I can spend hours watching a shoreline, seeing the waves lap upon the shore. I especially like cold water, which is not the temperature most people prefer. To me, though, there's something about the sting of it against your skin, how it begins to numb as you get used to it, that appeals to me. Having said all that, I also harbor an intense dislike for fish, and actually most aquatic animals for that matter, I have little desire for any of them to touch me as I swim. Despite my father's family having deep roots in Nova Scotia, I'm the odd duck there who doesn't eat any seafood. The bountiful lobsters that used to be brought to my grandmother's door were wasted on me, unless someone wanted to tease me with their stupid little claws. But there's one thing that terrifies me, above all else. I feel like I can be frank here, listeners. It's a strange dream of my life that once, just once, I'd like to live through a minor natural disaster. Now, perhaps it's not so strange, given the nature of the podcast that I make, but still, I don't want to be hurt in this disaster. I don't want anybody to be hurt for that matter. I just want to be able to say, oh yes, I lived through that earthquake. Or, no, no, for sure I remember where I was when the tornado hit. Maybe it's my desire to know things, to understand how it would feel. And having said all of this, there's one disaster that still strikes fear in my heart. Tsunami. The word comes from Japanese. It means harbor wave. Anytime I see a sign warning people to get to higher ground on the coasts, I feel a tiny jolt of fear. I can remember watching with horror the devastation of the 2004 tsunami that wrecked havoc on the Indian Ocean. That horror was reflected again 
in 2011, seeing the devastation in Japan. We are fortunate in this day and age to have the technology to record these events. We can watch footage of what happened. We can try and learn from the past. But almost a century ago, earthquake technology was still a relatively new science, one that most people were unfamiliar with. And those in tiny fishing villages on the Atlantic coast were most assuredly unfamiliar with it. This was the case on the Buren Peninsula in the southeast of the island of Newfoundland. Now, the Buren Peninsula is separated from the Avalon Peninsula by Placentia Bay, and on November 18, 1929, this would be the site of Canada's deadliest tsunami. The people on the Buren Peninsula were like many other Atlantic Canadians, although in 1929, Newfoundland was still a separate dominion and not part of Canada. Most who lived there were fishermen who spent their lives on the sea, heading off to fish in the fertile waters of the Grand Banks. The peninsula was a rugged place. There was no paved road connecting the small towns that dotted its shores. No road to St. John's, either. The fastest way to get from place to place was either by walking or by sailing. Because of the importance of the sea in their lives, many families chose to build their houses right at the harbor. This helped to keep them close to where they were salting their cod and also gave easy access to the boats in the early morning. Most houses were wooden framed. Very few had a foundation. Building codes were not a particularly much thought of thing at that time. And if anything, building the house right on the rock was easier. Life was more focused on survival than anything else. In November 1929, kitchens were filled with provisions for the coming winter. Vegetables had been pickled, meat had been smoked and dried, cod was being salted in stores all around the peninsula. And November had already been a rough month for weather. A few snowstorms had already hit. Winter was already on its way. The sun shone brightly on the 29th of November, taunting those who were worried about the plummeting stock value of salt cod. Though Newfoundlanders were far from New York City geographically, the devastation of the stock market crash almost a month earlier was beginning to be felt. Many families were able to tune in to the only radio station they got, W-O-R-N-Y, and heard the latest news coming from the city. The current salt cod stocks were hoping to be sold for whatever profit might be had before the end of the season. Children were more excited by the beautiful weather, with many heading out to play after school, enjoying the respite from the snowstorms. Older children went to school, and then came home to help their mothers with the young'uns 
doing homework, chores, or learning new skills. One small girl, Marianne Council, was learning to spin wool that day. After a successful start, a couple of hours later, at 4.58 p.m., she was finding herself in tangles. Literally. Frustrated, she swore aloud, quote, I wish the devil would take the wheel. As soon as she said those words, she felt a little bit of her anger dissipate. So she went back to work. Scheduled in Lamaline that evening, on the southwest section of the peninsula, was the ladies' orange hall meeting and tea. Women from towns as far as ten kilometers away had been busy making treats and looking forward to the socialization these meetings always provided. 250 kilometers away, deep in the Grand Banks, the earth was moving. At 5.02 p.m. Newfoundland time, 20 kilometers under the ocean, two tectonic plates shifted. An area the size of the country of El Salvador was shaken up, causing a 7.2 earthquake on the Richter scale. It was so powerful that 12 underwater cables nearby received 28 breaks. Some of these cables would not be fixed for over a year. The earthquake was felt as far inland as Ottawa and Montreal. Tremors were reported in New York City. Even South Carolina measured some rippling, and Bermuda, far into the ocean, also made records that day. Residents of Halifax, Nova Scotia, were shocked to feel the earth moving beneath their feet. People in the city were terrified, this having come only 11 years after the horrific Halifax explosion. Which, some have asked, and rest assured, will definitely be the subject of a future podcast episode. In the aftermath of this earthquake, the phone lines in Halifax were so inundated with people calling to check in on loved ones that the entire system shut down. Back on the Buren Peninsula, people were shocked to feel the ground shaking. Some who were indoors blamed it on rambunctious children stomping and jumping around upstairs. Others clutched onto furniture or rushed to hold the doors of china cabinets, hoping to prevent any accidents. There are stories of older children scooping up younger ones, of people falling to the ground walking home. All told, this earthquake lasted 27 seconds. When it stopped, people were bewildered. Nearly all had never experienced an earthquake before. Even fewer knew what that earthquake might mean. There were a few exceptions to this. Some people looked to their horses and cattle, for many animals had bolted after the tremors, heading to the hills and any higher ground they could find. A few people chose to follow them. 
In one town, an old Frenchman, who didn't speak much English, went around to each and every house, warning that a tidal wave was sure to follow. Nearly everyone laughed at him, believing that he was nothing but an old fool. Many gathered in the telegraph offices. At one, a lighthouse keeper named Sidney Hussey remarked to the people gathered there, trying to get any information, that a tidal wave was likely to come. Many ignored him, assuming that no such thing could happen there. The telegraph line had already been knocked down earlier that week because of a snowstorm. There was no communication between the Buren Peninsula and St. John's. When people felt sure that the shaking had stopped, life returned to normal. People walked to the Orange Hall meeting, all a Twitter about the excitement of the afternoon. Friends gathered at various homes for card games. Men gathered at one particular home, all prepared for their weekly poker game. Families ate their suppers, everyone talking about the earthquake. All seemed normal. At around 6.45 p.m., the Giovanninis headed down the wharf to where their salt cod shop stood directly over the harbor waters. Only there, the couple was shocked to discover there was no water. They could see clear down to the kelp and rocks of the bottom. Boats were resting on the sand. The tide had gone so far out as to be seen only in the distance. This was highly unusual. Dina, the wife, had a bad feeling about this. She told her husband to head inside and tell all their workers to abandon the building and head inland. Dina didn't know it at the time, but she saved all those men's lives. At 7.02 p.m., the first wave arrived. It traveled at a speed upwards of 100 kilometers per hour. Some who watched the wave come in described the sea foam looking like sheep approaching the hill. Most, though, described it as a wall of water that seemed to block out everything but the sky. And indeed, it was a wall of water. On the peninsula, the first wave that crashed was anywhere from three meters to seven meters high. It ripped houses from where they stood and slowly began pulling them towards the ocean. Families trapped inside began screaming, trying desperately to escape from their rooms now filled waist-high with frigid water. Others, hearing the screams, went out from their homes to see the ocean retreating and quickly ran for the hills, desperate to get away. Within seconds, the Giovannini shop was decimated by the water. The telegraph office where Sidney Hussey had warned people about the tidal wave was swept out to sea. One house with the family trapped inside miraculously got caught 
on a rock in the harbour that prevented the house from slipping further out to sea. They were able to escape through a window. Others weren't so lucky. One man, a Thomas Hillier, saw the first wave coming as he was walking home. His first instinct was to head to the harbour to try and save his boat, the boat that was his livelihood. He didn't make it. His body was found floating in the water days later. The men at the poker game had been blissfully unaware of the first wave hitting. They were warned right before the second one hit. The men scooped up the three children in the house, abandoned their cards and money, and ran just in time for the water to smash the house to pieces. One of the owner's ponies managed to break through the barn and gallop away moments before the wave hit that as well. Miraculously, the pony was found safe and sound four days later. Yet another man, who had been playing cards at a neighbor's house up on the hill, was shocked to look down at the bay through the window and see his own house floating on it. He was said to have stood up and screamed, My house! My wife and children are in it! He ran to try and rescue them, but was wisely held back by those who knew that if one wave had come, another was likely to follow. All told, there were three waves that formed the tsunami. They were approximately half an hour apart each. It took two hours for the water in Placentia Bay to return to normal. Shockingly, the length of the tsunami was approximately 20 kilometers in length and managed to hit only the Buren Peninsula. Nobody in the Avalon Peninsula was affected, nor was anyone on the islands of Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, slightly to the west of Buren. It was a direct hit. A devastating one. Those who had survived waited on higher ground for the water to begin returning to normal, before racing out on whatever boats remained floating to try and find survivors. In some cases, they were successful. Two children had been hidden behind a wood-burning stove, squeezed into a tiny position, their feet in the cold water. The children survived the ordeal, although one of them did later succumb to injuries she received while being tossed through the sea. One father rushed out of the house with two children tucked under his arms. He misjudged the timing, and the second wave hit him as they all ran out the door. Both children were ripped from his arms. Neither survived. As one child from another family grabbed her brother and ran out the door at the sound of the screams, her mother soon followed. Both children watched as their mother made it to the door, hesitated, and ran back to try and save another child still left upstairs. They never saw their mother alive again.
A similar story happened in another town. A woman had rushed back into her house to try and locate a child that had been in another room. When the wave hit, both she and the child were believed to have drowned. Her husband found his wife hours later, naked, bruised, and delirious on the shoreline. The water had ripped away all of her clothing. The stress of the ordeal would cause her hair to fall out and never return. There were stories of survival as well. Perhaps the most stunning is one of a child, one of five, who managed to survive the tsunami. This young girl had been sent up to bed early with an earache. She'd been given a plate that had been warmed in the oven to put under her pillow and try and soothe her pain. When her house was swept into the bay, she was the only one not on ground level. One of her brothers was found hiding under the couch. Two others were found hiding under the kitchen table with their mother. And the little baby was found still strapped to his high chair. The child left in bed had been heard crying for help. A group of men rustled themselves into a boat, raced to the house, and picked her up out of a window. She was taken to one of the few homes still standing, and there given a hot bath. Two babies were actually born that evening. One right before the first wave struck, the other right after. Both survived. All told, 28 people lost their lives in the tsunami. 10,000 people were affected. And to make matters even worse, the morning after the waves hit brought yet another snowstorm, bringing cold and misery to those left behind to deal with the aftermath. Whole harbors were gone. The stalks of salt cod had been wiped away. The season's catch had vanished. All the provisions of pickles and goods stored up for the winter had been swept into the sea. In the immediate aftermath, starvation loomed large. There simply wasn't enough food remaining on the peninsula for those who had survived. The postmistress and the telegraph officer bravely sailed out to where their offices were bobbing in the water a couple of days after the tsunami hit. Heading in through a second-story window, both women went and rescued as much equipment as they could. This equipment came in handy when three days later, the SS Porsche pulled in for its regularly scheduled stop. Evidently, the first sign that something was amiss was its captain noticing a store floating in the water. The SS Portia telegraphed St. John's, requesting immediate aid to the area. The government quickly delivered, sending steamship laden with food and medical supplies to the stricken peninsula. When the first of the relief steamships arrived, a woman was taken aboard. 
History records her as only Nurse Dorothy Cherry. She'd been in Lamaline the night of the tsunami, presumably attending the Orange Hall meeting, and over the next three days she had walked from town to town, delivering aid and comfort wherever she could. By the time the sailors found her, she'd gone all those hours without much sleep and was basically in a state of shock. She'd walked over 30 kilometers. A week later, some men who had headed far inland to collect firewood for the winter returned to their towns only to find their houses and in some cases families gone. Based on geography, some towns were hit worse than others. Perhaps the worst was the town of Taylor's Bay. Of the 17 houses that had stood in the town, only five were left standing after the tsunami. Taylor's Bay never recovered. Other towns didn't recover for years. It took another three for the fishing season to not be considered a failure. Many towns on the peninsula didn't fully recover until the beginning of World War II. A man in a letter to his brother described it best. Everything we have is gone and we are ruined. Many families were forced to pack up and leave Buren. Some who remained turned to mining operations, which led to serious health impacts on the generations to come. While such a tragedy may not happen again in our lifetimes, given the technology we have today, the 1929 tsunami stands as a reminder of the power of the ocean. If nothing else, it reminds me to pay attention to the animals around me. They can often sense things we humans cannot. So if the horses start to bolt near the ocean, might be time for me to do the same. I'm Rachel Stewart, and this has been Canadian Disasters, True North Strong and Destructive.